Well, last week we didn't get to preach because God was moving, so, and I'm okay with that. So I get to do last week's sermon today. So two weeks ago, I have to adjust my notes, we studied the account of Jesus trying to teach the disciples a great truth. This is when they're in a boat, they're going across the water, and he's trying to teach them something, and they're worried about bread. Remember, they couldn't, you know, we only got one loaf of bread, we're not going to make it, and They weren't listening to what Jesus was trying to teach them because they're worried about the bread. Jesus was basically saying, forget the bread. I got the bread pan problem handled. Remember, I just did that twice. And what, and I thought about that. How often do you hear a sermon or a song and you're not listening to what God's trying to say in that sermon or song because you're thinking about other things? And the other things may be important, but they're crowding your mind. You can't listen to what God's wanting to say. And I think a lot of times during those, those moments, God can also be saying to us, you know, forget about that problem right now. Listen to what I'm saying to you now. I'll handle the bread. I'll handle the problem. And I think God is asking us, do you trust me to do that? It's easy to walk into church on a Sunday thinking about all you got to do next week or all that happened last week or whatever problems may come up. And you focus on that, and, and I've done it, You've sung sung the song and you don't even remember singing the song because you're thinking about something else. And I think we need to focus more on what Jesus is trying to tell us either through the songs that we sing or the sermon that we hear. So now we come into the next two accounts in Mark's gospel. Now we'll look at each one separately. We'll do the first one and see how they work together with the second one. Mark 8.22 says, they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind, blind man by the hand, led him outside the village. When he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put a, his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were open, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home saying, don't go into the village. Now, if you remember the map we had from last week, we see that Jesus first arrived in Magdala on the left there. Now he's sailing up to Bethsaida at the very top of the map. It's during this boat ride that they were freaking out about the bread, right? So they get to Bethsaida, and we're not even sure if the guys actually understood what Jesus was trying to teach them or if they're still worrying about the bread, thinking about anything about that. It doesn't say whether they got it. I'm going to think that they didn't yet, but it doesn't really say. Now, as soon as they landed, people were already coming up to him, so they must have known he was going to get there. Verse 22, we'll go through this verse by verse. 22 says, they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. Now, in this section, Mark records two miracles that the other gospels don't record. The first was the deaf guy that we talked about a week or so ago, and this here event was the second one. Now, in both of these events, friends brought these guys to Jesus. They didn't go stretching them out on their own. They had friends that brought him to Jesus. Now, commentators think that his gradual healing was partially due to his unbelief, but it never says that. The point is, these guys had friends enough to bring them to Jesus because they knew that Jesus would heal them. And I thought about that Do we believe in the power of God enough to bring people to church for God to work in their life? Or 
Are you embarrassed to bring people to church because of what might happen in church? Now, I've been in churches where I thought, you know what, I would probably never invite, invite any of my friends to this service. But a lot of times, especially in Pentecost, we want the Holy Spirit to move, right? We want God to move by his, by his Spirit. And a lot of times that happens in ways that are so unfamiliar with people who aren't church people. And they might get freaked out about that. And if we don't bring anybody because of that, then we're not letting God, the Holy Spirit, work in their life. That may be something they need to see. My first time in a, in a Pentecostal church coming from a Catholic background, I thought y'all were crazy. <laughs> you guys are nuts. Who's that guy talking gibberish in the back? Someone needs to shut him up. Where are the ushers? Take him out of here. But, but the problem is that's where God works because the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 14, not even in my notes, that unbelievers will see these things and believe in God. So that's why we want the power of the Holy Spirit to work. Now, do we believe that enough to bring people to church who need God to work in their life in a miracle way? Bring them to church and trust God's gonna do that. I wrote down here, if you're waiting for your friends to just walk in on their own accord without you asking them to come, you're gonna be waiting a long time because people aren't gonna come unless you invite them to come. And there's, I know, I used to have this statistic that huge, like 80, 90% of people who came to church came because someone invited them to come. Not because they saw an ad or the marquee or, an, or, or some kind of something else. They came because their friend, their neighbor, their relative asked them to come to church. These guys brought these two people who need to be healed to Jesus. If they wouldn't have brought him, these guys would probably not be healed. So our job is to bring them into God's place for God to work in their life. Now, for both of these accounts, Jesus led them away from the crowds. In this case, Jesus led this guy out of town. Verse 23 says, he took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. Now that's unusual. Hey, walk with me outside the entire town. Why? Because most of the miracles done in Mark were done in public. So why would Jesus want to do this on the down low? I would think because this town had already been judged because of their unbelief and no more signs were going to be given to them. If you look at Matthew's account of this, or not this, but one before that, Matthew eleven twenty one 21 says, Woe to you, Bethsaida. If the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted up to the skies? No, you will go down to the depths. If the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you that it will be no more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. So basically, Jesus is saying, I've already given up in this town. I've done enough miracles for them. They don't believe it, so... I'm done. So he leads this guy out of town because he doesn't want anyone to see another miracle. They've already seen enough. They're not going to believe it if they see one more. And he leads a man out of town. Now verse 23 says, when he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, do you see anything? So here we have spitting again. He spit on one guy's tongue. 
He spits in this guy's eyes. I'm surprised there's not a book out there, Seven Ways of How Spitting Can Heal You. Now, I don't know if it means anything. No commentators that I've read ever mentioned anything about spitting. Maybe there's something to the spitting. I, I don't know. Um, probably not going to incorporate that into our time of prayer. Unless you all want to be spit on, I, I, you know. Um, I probably am not going to do that. So, look at the dynamics of what's happening here. Jesus first asked this guy if he sees anything. Now, you would think that the answer would be, yep, I can see everything clearly. Just like the deaf guy, he heard and spoke instantly first time. But not this time. Verse 23 and 24, he says, do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. The healing was not instantaneous. It took time. And it took more than once for Jesus to pray for him. Now, one thing about this, it tells us the guy probably wasn't born blind. It was probably an accident. How would he know what trees look like? How would he know what people look like if he's never seen them? So he must have been able to see at some point, and now he's blind for whatever accident. Um, But whatever the case, this is not an instant miracle. It was a progressive miracle. It happened over time. It could be the guy's faith wasn't there. It doesn't say. I think more likely it could be that God's methods are not to be predicted. If we, if, I, I say this about folks who were born blind. Every time God heals a blind man, he does it differently. If he did it the same way every single time, I guarantee there would be a book, How to Heal the Blind Person, and using this method that Jesus used. But he did it differently every time, and this time it's progressive. In fact, there are seven times that Jesus healed blind people, and it was different every time. We would begin to trust the method and not the Lord. If spitting was a thing, we said, okay, every time if we spit on you, God's going to heal you. We begin to trust the method rather than trusting the Lord to do it. John Calvin writes this, about this section. He did so probably for the purpose of proving in the case of this man that he, Jesus, had full liberty as to his method of healing and was not restricted to a fixed rule. We might pray for healing here today and God may take his time to fulfill that healing. It might be a progressive healing taking place just over time. Jesus had to pray more than once for this guy we may have to pray more than one time for God to heal, for God to do something. Now we're praying for Mason. We believe God's gonna do it. It could be tomorrow, it could be in a year. But we're believing that God's gonna do it. Mark goes on and says in verse 24, he looked up and says, I see people, they look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were open, his sight restored, and he saw everything clearly. It basically took more than one time of asking for someone to be healed. There's no verbal questions that we know of here, but it took more than one time of asking for the healing to be completed. 
I believe we have to pray more than one time for God to work. We've used the illustration in Daniel where Daniel had prayed for 21 days. And the Bible says that the angel left instantly at the beginning of the 21 days, but in the process was in a spiritual battle that it took three weeks to get there. If Daniel had quit praying after two weeks, when it got there. It means our continual prayers matter for God to bring a healing. Even if we see progress in a healing or a miracle, we keep praying until it's completed. We're believing for Judy's healing. But we keep praying that God finishes the good work he's already started. Verse 26 says, Jesus sent him home saying, don't go into the village. Again, this relates to the part about Bethsaida being judged as well as a continuing request not to let anyone know about this miracle. Don't tell everybody. I don't want everyone knowing right this moment. So how does this story and the one we talked about two weeks ago tie together? Well, Jesus was preparing the, the disciples to understand who he was. And both of these miracles, the deaf and blind, were fulfilled prophecies of the Old Testament about who they expect the Messiah to be. If these guys knew their Old Testament, and I believe they did, they would know the prophecies about the Messiah. Isaiah 35, 6, 35, 5 says, and when he comes, it's talking about the Messiah, he will open the eyes of the blind, unstop the ears of the deaf. The lame will leap like a deer, and those who cannot speak will sing and shout. Both of these healings were kind of to show the disciples, hey, I'm this guy that Isaiah's talking about. I'm, I've done everything in, in this verse here. You need to recognize who I am. And these were performed for the express purpose of getting the guys to have their spiritual eyes opened. Now, Jesus wants to see how that's working for them. In verse 27, he goes on, Jesus and his disciples went into the village of Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? So he's done these miracles for them, fulfilling the prophecies of Isaiah, hoping that they understand who he is, and he's kind of laying the groundwork to get them thinking about it. And so he asked them, hey, who do people think I am? And the series of questions relates to the previous healings, the blind and the deaf. Their understanding of who Jesus is is progressive, just like the blind guy's healing. It's progressive. And isn't that the question today we have? Who is Jesus? And just like their response, you get responses from everybody in the world, same thing. What was their response? Verse 28 says, they replied, well, some say you're John the Baptist, others say you're Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. If you ask someone in the world today, who do you think Jesus is? He's a good teacher, he's a moral guy, good religious leader. They'll give you a thousand answers except the right one, that Jesus was in fact God. And again, like today, all these answers shows that Jesus is less than who he really is. John the Baptist was always a forerunner, someone who would precede Christ. John always looked for someone to be greater than him. And there are many differences between the two, so he can't, it can't be John the Baptist. John preached judgment. Luke 3, 7 says, here's a sample of John's preaching to the crowds that came for baptism. Here's an altar call. You brood of snakes, who warned you to flee God's coming judgment? There's the, there's the love of God for you. 
you vipers. And if you, how many are watching The, the Chosen? There's a, there's a moment in The Chosen where they go on to explain this a little bit. I don't know this to be true. I think it's, I don't know. But I guess that these particular snakes, they hatch inside their mother and basically kill the mother to get out. And so that's what he's calling these guys. So there's, there's the grace of God. Now, Jesus didn't preach judgment. He preached grace. Elijah was also a forerunner for Jesus, and people thought Jesus was Elijah, Mark 6, 15. Others thought Jesus was the ancient prophet Elijah. So others thought he was a prophet like the other great prophets of the past. So how do people answer that question today? The same way, give you a thousand different answers except the right one. But in this account, Jesus had given every evidence to the people that he was who the Old Testament said the Messiah was going to be. And they still didn't quite get it. They still weren't there yet. And instead of searching things out from themselves through the Old Testament, they were kind of listening to what the world was saying. What's the popular opinion today of the world? Well, Jesus, some say you're Elijah. Some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're, you know, one of the old prophets. People still have their opinions instead of their convictions. Are we convinced in our mind of who Jesus is? You would think that someone, anyone who was a witness to all these miracles would say, you know, maybe this guy is the Messiah. But nobody, at least according to what these guys were saying, nobody that they talked to ever gave the inclination that this guy could be the Messiah. I'm thinking, seriously, not, not one person in all these miracles he's done in front of everybody, no one has ever mentioned to them that he might be the Messiah. I mean, even the demons recognized him, but nobody else recognized who he was. And I thought about that. How often do we meet people who have seen and witnessed miraculous things, but have always discounted them? I mentioned this last week, but I heard this on a podcast that Doctors are very reluctant to admit a miracle or think because now they think the doctor can't do his job right. If you go in for a test and one day you have it, the next day you don't, other doctors are going to think, well, you misdiagnosed that. And the insurance company is going to say, well, I'm not paying for that. You misdiagnosed it the first time. And since they don't have a Christian worldview, they're going to think the doctor made a mistake. And if he operates on you and you've already been healed, why did you perform an unnecessary surgery? So if you wonder, in that day, people's inability to identify Jesus as the Messiah wasn't due to maybe peer pressure. Look, nobody else in the town is saying he's Messiah. I'm probably not going to say it either. I'm not going to be the one to stand up and say it. And I think that applies to church today too. People might be afraid to go to church or maybe listen to the gospel or get saved because if they get saved, what would other people think? What would my family think? What would, what would happen to me if I did that? I remember when I was a new Christian and I went to work, and when I worked in Pittsburgh, and there was a guy, and they all knew I was a Christian because I was acting stupid when I went to work. I was, you know, 
wearing lapel pins and everything about Jesus. And one guy says, so you, one of those born-again guys. And I went, and the only, I don't know where the scripture came from because I didn't know it. This is where the Holy Spirit brings things to your mind. The one scripture that God brought to my mind was, if you deny me before men, I'll deny you before my father. I'm like, thanks, Lord. And so I said, yes, I am one of those born-again guys. And then the ridicule followed after that. But that was a major thing for me to do that. It, was, it, it helped me to be able to do it more. Once I got over that first hurdle of saying that, it was like, okay, now everybody knows, go ahead and hit me with your best shot and we'll go from here. That wasn't really courage because it was just nothing was going to happen to me. But it does take courage to stand for Jesus. Whether your family, your friends, your neighbors, your job, it may take, and that was no big deal. That was just a personal thing for me. But it may cost you more than that. It may cost you family relationships. It may cost you friendships. And I find out what happens over time is your friends don't instantly leave you. You just don't do the same things together anymore. And you wind up making new friends with people who do the same things as you. And that's not any different from life. I mean, how many of us still hang out with the people you hung out with high school? <laughs> Probably not. Because you do things differently. And once you get married and have kids, then your whole life diverts to that direction. So do you have the courage to stand for Jesus? So now Jesus presses them for their thoughts. He says, okay, I heard what you said everybody else thinks. What do you think? Verse 29, what about you, he asked. Who do you say that I am? In other words, it doesn't matter what others say about me. It does matter what you say about me. One commentary says it this way. Who do you, my most intimate and trusted friends, as opposed to everybody else who neither knew me or understood me, think that I am? You know, People's opinions usually don't bother me that much. But it would bother me if it was someone close to me. I remember watching this, this old show on TV and one guy says to the other guy, he says, you know, he says, I didn't think you cared about anybody thought. He says, I don't, but I care what you think. And a lot of times, God wants us to say, what do you think? I don't care about anybody else. What do you think? What are you doing with Jesus? Because each of us has to stand on our own regardless of what all the crowds are saying or doing. You're not going to be up in front of Jesus after you die with a bunch of your friends hanging around trying to justify you. You're going to be standing with Jesus by yourself. And he's going to ask you the same question. The idea, your idea of who Jesus is cannot be determined by anyone other than you. That's why the phrase, God has no grandchildren. Your kids don't get in because you're a Christian. Your grandkids don't get in because you're a Christian. Your kids have to make the choice for themselves. Hopefully, you don't mess it up too much. They still want to make that choice. But even if you do everything right, they still have to make the choice on their own. I think of uh, Adam and Eve. Who was Adam's father? God. And he still blew it. So 
We do our best to raise our kids to love the Lord, but they have to make the choice on their own. Following Jesus has never been put to a vote where the majority wins because we're never going to be the majority. What's the Bible say? Narrow is the way that leads to heaven. Wide is the way that leads to destruction. So we're never going to be in the majority. When we stand before Jesus, he won't ask this question to us. What does the world think about me? He's going to ask, what do you think about me? And most importantly, what do you do with that knowledge of me? You've heard the gospel. Hopefully you've heard it here many times. Did you respond to it or not? And the Bible says we're going to be judged according to the light that we have. If you've been in the church and you've heard the gospel 50 times and you've not responded to it, it's not going to be good for you. I gave you 50 chances and you ignored every one of them. And the only answer Jesus is really looking for is what Peter said in verse 29. Peter answered, you are the Christ. Christ in the Greek means the anointed one. The Old Testament Hebrew word is Messiah, same thing. I like what one commentary says. It says, in the Old Testament, the word is used by anyone who is anointed with the holy oil, as, for example, the priests and kings of Israel. Jesus was both high priest and king. The word carries with it the idea of chosenness by God, consecration to his service, and endowment with his power to accomplish the task assigned. Jesus was the anointed one, chosen by God, to do the task that was assigned to him. And what was the task that was assigned to him? To be crucified. There's a line from an old movie that I like. The na name of the movie is Absence of Malice. It's 1980, 81. But it's about a, a newspaper thing. And, and in the end, they're interviewing one of the persons in the movie. And the reporter asked the question, the girl, re, uh, girl responded, the, the question was, were you, were you having a relationship with this guy? And she says, yes. And the girl says, that's true, right? And the girl paused and she said, it's not true, but it's accurate. I thought, that's weird. What's that mean? It means the statement is accurate in a strict definition but it's not true in what it meant. What do I mean by that? Peter's response is accurate. Jesus is the Messiah. But Peter's idea of who the Messiah is was not who Jesus was gonna be. At this point, the disciples believed, as most did Judaism, that the Messiah would be a political and national figure. So they, yeah, you're right, Peter, I am the Messiah. However, your definition of Messiah is not my definition of Messiah. They thought he was going to overthrow Rome. And that's why Jesus made the next, step, next, next statement, verse 30. But Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Again, we go back to why this happened. Because these guys still did not have an accurate view of who Jesus was. They still thought he was the guy that's going to overthrow Rome. And he doesn't want that getting out. Because he doesn't want all the rest of Judaism following him for that particular reason. Peter was basically saying to Jesus, 
You are the Christ. You are the one who will deliver us from Rome. And, and Jesus was thinking, okay, you guys still need more training. And the time, you need more time with Jesus and you need more time with me to understand why I'm here. You don't get it yet. Yeah, I'm the Messiah, but I'm not here to do what you think I'm gonna do. And once they got it, once they understood it, then they would be free to proclaim who Jesus was. Because if they started saying he's the Messiah, <coughs> then they'd be rallying all the guys around him, Peter, the, you know, Simon the Zealot. Let's go, we're gonna overthrow Rome. So, if they started spreading the news about Jesus being the Messiah at this point, what would happen is they'd probably cause an uprising among the Jews waiting to overthrow Rome. That was his reaction to every miracle because people didn't understand why he was there yet. People were coming only for the miracles and not for the message. If they heard the Messiah would come, they weren't listening to what he's saying. They were looking at the miracles. Okay, he's Messiah. Let's have this uprising right now. Jesus goes on and tells them his true mission and the cost of discipleship. Now, I'm going to get to that part next week. So what's the takeaway? Every time I read something in the Bible, I want to pick one verse or one thought that I want to, you know, what's that saying to me right now? When we leave today, what part of this is going to stick with you? And that's the amazing thing about God's word. Each one of us may glean something different that encourages us or challenges us. This whole sermon, maybe one sentence that appears to you, a second sentence that appears to you, and that's where the Holy Spirit comes into play. What is the Spirit speaking to you today? We prayed last week for the power of the Holy Spirit to fill this place, and he did. And the Holy Spirit is the one who will take a certain part of this and speak it to you. God still speaks to us through his Spirit. But he also speaks to us through his Word. When you read his Word... What is God saying to you in that particular passage that you're reading? Is there something in there that God wants you to really grasp a hold of? Is there something in this particular passage that God wants to speak to you? I'm not the Holy Spirit. But as you listen to what the Bible says, the Holy Spirit will seal that in your spirit. The last sentence I wrote down here is, what is the Holy Spirit speaking to you today? And are you listening? And more importantly, are you expecting to hear from him? Would you stand as we close this morning? And we said last week, and we say virtually every week, that we come expecting God to do something. And we don't come to church because it's, you know, it's Sunday you gotta go to church. We come because we believe God's gonna do something. God's gonna say something, God's gonna do something, something in the sermon, something in the song that's gonna minister to me, so that when I leave today, I will be encouraged that God just took time. And that's the, I think that's the most important thing. Not only do you, that God speaks to you, and you hear something that really ministers to you, but that God took the time for you. That there's something in the word that God wanted you to hear. 
that he cared enough about you that there's something that he wants to minister to you with. And when we come to church, that's what the Holy Spirit does. He just takes just a guy like me, any knucklehead on the platform, saying something that the Spirit wants you to hear. Maybe it's a song, maybe it's a verse, maybe it's some commentary, but God wants to use that in your life, whatever need is on your heart, that God wants to really meet that need this morning. So if you'd bow your heads for a moment, close your eyes. Hallelujah. Maybe you're here this morning and you, either this is your first time in church or you've been in church all your life. And it's possible to be in church all your life and never really commit your life to Christ. You come because it's really what your parents did. But it's a choice you have to make on your own. And you can sit in church and listen to sermons all day long, but if you don't ask Jesus to forgive you of your sins and receive that cleansing, you're not going to understand what anything is we're saying. Because the Bible says that the Holy Spirit helps you to understand what is being taught and what is being preached. And the Bible also says that there's no accidents, no coincidences. God is sovereign. That means God does what he wants to do. And if you're here, it's because God allows you to be here this morning. To hear something or sing something that God knows you needed to hear or receive in a song. Not by accident. It's because God cared enough about you to make sure you were here to hear it. And if you've never really given your life to Christ and you may know a lot of things about God, a lot of things about church. But unless you come to the point where you say, Lord, I'm a sinner, and there's nothing I can do in my own self to make it. Because the Bible says the wages of sin is death. We're all sinners, wages of sin is death. And death is simply separation from God. You choose to be separate from God here. God lets you keep that choice when you go to eternity. And you'll be separate from God in eternity. But the Bible says that the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. You can't have your sins forgiven and be right with God without Jesus. The Bible says as many as receive him, those are the people he gave the authority to be called children of God. You're not a child of God because you're alive. You become a child of God when you accept Christ. The Bible never teaches the fatherhood of God and brotherhood of man. You're part of God's family when you become a Christian. The Bible says that God does not hear the prayers of the unrighteous. But those who are Christians, he hears. The one prayer that God hears of the unrighteous is the prayer of salvation. If you're here, you've never given your life to Christ. You've never come to a point in your life where you say, okay, Lord, I give up. I can't make it on my own. I need Jesus. When the Bible says there's no accident, you're here because God needed to hear that. And God's given you an opportunity to make that choice. So if that's you, this whole service was for you. And I want you to raise your hand so we can pray with you and acknowledge that choice you've made this morning. Maybe you said that prayer a long time ago. 
And it's been a long time since you really have pressed in to find more of Jesus. You got saved when you were maybe in school or in high school or in your 20s, but yeah, it's been 10 years since I've really done anything with that. And I, need to, I know I need to get better at it. The Bible calls that sometimes backsliding. You come in, then you kind of walk away. Well, the Bible says it's also the God of second, third, and 49 chances. If you said that prayer years ago, weeks ago, whenever, but you've not done anything with it, the Bible says today is the day to come back. Renew that commitment to Christ. Say, Lord, I want to start this thing anew. I want to get right with you. I know that I've been a Christian a long time, but I've not been doing it right. I want to get on the right page with you. There's a lot of folks walking around the world who's, you know, either they're saved, but they don't go to church, they don't get involved, or they've never been saved, they think they are saved. So if that's you and you want to commit, recommit yourself to serving the Lord, I want you to raise your hand. All right, I'm going to assume that everyone here is a committed follower of Christ. So Father, I do thank you. I thank you for your word. I thank you for the ability to worship you, as your word says, in spirit and in truth. The lyrics of the song we sing are scripturally true, and we worship you with the Holy Spirit working through us. And we thank you for your word that challenges us and encourages us and gets us to move to the next level with you. And I pray that each person here would just receive exactly what you have for them. Maybe it's the courage to invite a friend to church. Maybe it's the courage to talk to someone about Jesus. Maybe it's even the courage to admit that you are a Christian to your unchristian friends. And maybe it's the, un the ability to acknowledge that Jesus really is who he says he is. And not one to overtake the world, but one that wants to change your heart. So Father, I pray your blessing upon each person here. Allow the Spirit of God to really work in their life. Do what no man can do in them. Bless them, give them peace and encouragement. And let, them, let the Word of God, as your Word says, come back not void, but able to do and accomplish what it was meant to do. I commit them to you, Lord. They're your kids. We're all your kids, Lord. Keep us on the right path of serving you and loving you and doing the best that we can to honor you just out of gratitude. We're not, we're not working to earn your love. We just want to live our life to show you that we appreciate your love. So Lord, I commit them to you in that end, in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. Have a great week. See you Wednesday night, next Sunday. What's next Sunday? Nothing? Sunday. Church. God's going to show up.